Welcome to the Book Evangelists podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode 10, in which we will be discussing the results of NaNoWriMo 2019 and two books Lissa has labeled as Cozy Punk. This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone, and The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. Good morning, Marian. Good morning, Lissa. So it's December. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Have you recovered from your November adventures? It's hard to say for, okay, this was what year eight for me for NaNoWriMo and it has never taken me longer than 23 days to win at NaNoWriMo because of how I am, I guess, you know, I like to get out front, get out early, put the nails in that coffin, move along. And it took me until the 29th to finish and I was traveling for the holidays and it felt different. I'm used to, you know, putting in my 50,000th word and putting in the validator, which they didn't have this year. Right. And, uh, and watching the little cheering video. And it just felt very different. I finished while other people were playing cards. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I got there. Anti at the end there. Yeah. So, so did you uh, did you have a successful NaNoWriMo? I've had a successful NaNoWriMo and I wrote 50,000 words. I think I actually wrote 51,000 words because I couldn't, I wasn't ready to write the end right when I crossed the line, but I also wasn't sure what the end was yet. So I had to come back the next day and write a little more. Yeah, well, at least you're at the end of your story. I have another 30 or 40,000 words to add to to mine. So oh my I'm really, goodness. I'm really only halfway through, but I did get 50,000, so. So you won. Yeah, I did. So, I so was how, was, how was writing a mystery? Really interesting. I enjoyed it much more than last year's romance, which was yes. a painful experience for me, as you know. Um, last year in, in the romance, I liked the people fine and the, the setting fine. I just didn't enjoy the process. It's just not the right thing for me. And I enjoyed the process a lot more this year, although writing a romance and writing a mystery have several things in common, including how much people talk all the time. Uh, I, I was kept writing notes myself, like, must write epistolary novel with no dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> um, some would say that epistolary novels are all dialogue. I know, but you don't have the quotation marks and all those commas, and it's so slow for me to write. You just have to write, like, the news. Um, and uh, as you know, I'm not the greatest plotter in the world, and I made a real effort this year because I thought, oh, well, if it's a murder mystery, A, it would be really helpful if I knew who the bad guy was because I usually don't. I have a terrible problem with antagonists. And also you need clues that are woven in or your main character discovering things and making progress on the puzzle throughout and you know things have to happen in chapter four that you recall in chapter 13 or whatever. And I intended to have a really solid outline plot. Yeah. You had like, you had stuff you were doing in October. I did, but somehow no. And, uh, but I was surprised how things would happen in my normal way of making it up as I go along. And I would think, oh, that's a good clue. Because I did know who did it and how and why before I started. And then I made a table of like all these clues and, how they might be used to advance my plot later and when I might want to bring them back in. And I think it's going pretty well. That's awesome. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So how was uh, writing um, whatever it is you said you were going to write? Right. It not, was, not um, a romance, not an office Not a romance. Thing. 
It was not a romance. It was not a romance and not an office drama. Um, I mean, th- they went to the office sometimes. Of course they did. They have jobs. <laughs> uh, so I thought that I was going to write about um, this one person who like worked a job and you designed me a beautiful book cover and like she was my main character most of the book um and so then it immediately became about two people communicating across a 15-year gap of time in this online book discussion kind of it was called book club for one and then i started writing about the narrator of their stories so like a meta thing yeah and made that narrator be like sort of like a social worker of you know, like the narrators intervene in our lives when we need a little help to get unstuck. Yes, I like this idea very much. And then the narrator got really stressed and harried because like corporate was like influencing them to do their jobs faster and in more uniform ways. And so the narrator like messed up a little bit and sent a dragon to Topeka. (laughs) And I've just got to say, that's not the story I thought I was writing. (laughs) And I was very surprised. And a lot of that happened at the... uh, locally here we have the marathon ride-in of awesomeness right so i'm like frantically messaging my friend like hey could you take me a picture of like some stuff from the D monster manual about dragons because i thought i watched the movie how to train your dragon to prepare for this bit but actually that's not the dragon that has shown up and i need to know what an ancient copper dragon looks like and it was it was not where i thought things were going but everything got like different and also better and um so then I'll just spoil my novel for you because, I mean, why wouldn't I? Because it's sure. finished and no one else is really going to probably read it. I would, um, but you, know, you never let me read your novels. I know. So I would read your novels. I'd really have to clean this up. <laughs> so I thought I was, I hit 50,000, but I didn't have at the end. And I had successfully sent the dragon like back to their, you know, other parallel universe or whatever, where they were supposed to have been the whole time. And I told my sister, who was visiting, um, oh, I, you know, and I made the dragon go away. And she was like, why would you do that? Here, let me play you this song on my phone. And the song she played me was about a dragon and a pin- princess who become pin pals. And I was like, oh, I've got to go write some more words. I'll be right back. And so then it turned out that the entire point of my novel was that um, the narrator pulled the dragon basically to Topeka where they destroyed downtown Topeka um, by accident-ish. I mean, a second dragon came, so there was a territorial issue. But um, And then went back to the, you know, basically D&D universe they'd been pulled out of where they made friends with a princess and um, spent their time capturing adventurers and drawing the stories of the adventurers out of them and writing them down instead of a book publishing company. And that was how my story ended. And I didn't really see any of that coming. And it made me real happy. Good. See, this is awesome, in my opinion. It sounds totally interesting. I would read that book. Well, if I ever clean up the parts that I voice memo to myself so that they're actual, you know, good words (laughs) and not almost the right word. In November, you got to do what you got to do. You do. You do. So um, it was a fun adventure. And I, I loved it. And it wasn't what I thought it would be. And... Um, you know, I wrote what I needed to hear a lot. So a lot of it was like how being in a book club is very, very good. And, um, lots of times my characters talked about the very books we talk about. So that part was lovely. And it it pays to write what you know, you know, the, or something that's personally interesting to you. You know, my main character, uh, the book is set in 1920s England, but my main character is a lady archaeologist and, because of my personal interests, I was able to like drop in true facts of British archaeology without having to go look them up. Like, um, I guess like how you would you know, cut a trench into a barrow or what you're likely to find there or the fact that early Christian sites in Great Britain often contain these little white pebbles and no one knows why, but they clearly were bringing white pebbles there from the beach and leaving them there. Uh, and stuff like that, that I just knew already. I love that these are things you just knew. I just know these things, right? Because, yeah. So, but that was really helpful to me. Because usually, I was thinking of your your dragon arriving, and you're like, ah, got to do some emergency research. I limit right. myself to five-click research during NaNoWriMo, because that's what right. Chris Beatty told me to do, um, who invented NaNoWriMo. 
uh, you know, just enough to get the the story moving forward, and then I promise myself I'll clean it up and put in a true facts later. Uh, but it was nice to not have to even really go look at much of anything because I already know that, or being able to reach out and draw on something without having to spend a day wondering what in the heck it was, you know, how do you get out of the situation or what are you likely to find here? Or, or yes. Whatever. And it, I think it provided more depth to the book to have my character be able to talk knowledgeably about her subject without me having to learn it. Um, yeah. Because you can work it in more naturally. Yeah. I did have my narrator watch How to Tame a Dragon and then believe that the dragon they had sent to Topeka was basically like the dragons in those movies. <laughs> nice um, one. So that way we were both covered. We had the same level of knowledge about dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just turned out we were both wrong. There you go. That's so it was cool. like awkward, but good. And you get all those words while you're learning about what dragons are really like. Yeah. I mean, I didn't recap the movie in the book, but we had the same frame of reference. There you go. So another successful NaNoWriMo in the books. Yes. That was number 17 for me. I know. You're so awesome. I'm something. Consistent. I'm very consistent in my November uh, hey, behaviors. Hey, don't diss being consistent. This world needs more consistency. That's what I say. And apparently stories that have dragons. And stories that have dragons. Yes, for sure. So do you want to talk about books Let's that we it. didn't write? That we did not write, but other people did. Yes. So that's, that's good. Sure. Would you like to uh, read to us a synopsis of the first one? Yes. So first up today, we have This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. Um, The description says, uh, Two time-traveling agents from warring futures working their way through the past begin to exchange letters and fall in love in this thrilling and romantic book from award-winning authors Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. In the ashes of a dying world, Red finds a letter marked, Burn Before Reading, signed Blue. So begins an unlikely correspondence between two rival agents in a war that stretches through the vast reaches of time and space. Red belongs to the agency, a post-singularity technotopia. Blue belongs to Garden, a single vast consciousness embedded in all organic matter. Their pasts are bloody and their futures mutually exclusive. They have nothing in common save that they're the best and they're alone. Now what began as a battlefield boast grows into a dangerous game, one both red and blue are determined to win, because winning's what you do in war, isn't it? And the description says it's a tour de force collaboration from two powerhouse writers that spans the whole of time and space. So I asked you to read this. You did. Because I um, actually bought it after I started following Amal on Twitter because of something that had popped up on my Twitter feed about community building that I just loved. Um, and then the publisher was offering, if you bought the, if you pre-ordered the book and sent the receipt to the special email address, they would send you a present. <laughs> okay. What was your so present? This, um, a, and I, you had to pick a side in the time war. Oh. So I picked red because you got a red Cardinals pin. Oh. I mean, not, you know, Cardinals, yeah, but, but it I was like a Cardinal. Right. Uh, so I picked red, like not knowing going into the book who was who. Um, so I got my red pin in the mail. It was pretty Excellent. great. What would, you, what, what, what would you have gotten if you'd picked blue? Um, a blue bird pin. Oh, blue bird pin. Yeah. And did red turn out to be your favorite character? I mean, I like them both. I don't know. I like the way that red acts in the book, but I like the idea of garden. Yeah. I mean, I generally would always go with a garden metaphor in my life. Yeah. But I really liked Red as a character, so it was hard to... Because I tended to favor whoever was talking at the time. Oh, that too. (laughs) Very, very uh, biddable, like malleable, as it were. Root for all the people. So you did recommend this book to me. And as I remember, I already had a hold on the audiobook uh, for some reason or another. And it's one of those books that had arrived on my book reading radar, but I don't know how. It could be that you had just been chattering about it for so long before you recommended it to me that I had already taken your recommendation before you made it. I was excited about it in advance. <laughs> could be. Uh, but I, don't remember, but I, I did listen to it on audio 
And in this case, I think that's probably a different experience than reading it on the page. Because I didn't ever listen to this on audio, which for me is also weird for science fiction. Uh -huh. Yeah, it is weird for science fiction. And it, it's a perfectly fine audio book, don't get me wrong. But um, in many ways, I think, oh, I need to go and get back on a list and get this as a paper book so I can look at it. Uh, and it's very short. It's like 44,000 words. It's really secretly a novella. And I don't think they're secret about it. They're pretty they're open. They're pretty about open. It. Okay, so it is something, but you know, uh, it, it's 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 a novella rather than a novel, and uh, the chapters are very short. I read the, like a chapter a day for a great while. Yeah, like I paced it because I didn't want to rush through it, and I needed time to like go walk around looking at things that were red and blue. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a so. thing. It was you, a thing. I don't know. Like, it was a thing on Twitter. People would be like, oh, I just saw these red and blue things. <laughs> I was, I was like, the number, it became almost like a game to have things that were red or blue or ways to describe or shades of red and blue. Yes, so Without much. saying red and blue. Uh, and I was impressed by that because as a writer, I'm like the person who uses the same word 15,000 times. And then I have to go and figure out... Um, like in my nano novel this year, I had that problem with because she's digging up stuff. So there are they objects or things or artifacts or finds or treasures or what? So and I felt like I used the same words over and over again. So that was very good. So back to this one. Yes. This was a big book for you this year. I just really I mean, I like epistolary stuff. I really like um, books where uh, the characters spend the entire book flirting, which I feel like this book was, except that like the flirting was super more significant than usual because also they were trying to kill each other a little bit or yeah. not kill each or other not a little kill bit. Each other. Make it it was look, hard to tell. I felt like they're trying to make it look like they're interested in killing each other because if you're not doing your job, people notice. Oh, yeah, and then you die. Yeah, then you die. Right, also, flirting was dangerous. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in that way, I think the flirting was heightened in the way that a lot of times um, – like, I've always really liked reading, um, like, YA romances about um, teenage boys falling in love with each other because sure. their flirting, again, is, like, super more significant than usual. Right. Like, it's not just, like, oh, I like him. It's, like, oh, I like him, and it will change the whole world, and everyone I know will think differently about me if I let anyone know. So yeah. this was that heightened level of flirting. So you like the sneaky, illicit aspects of their love. Yes. Okay. Excellent. And the way that it makes them act and think, because yeah. everything is more and heightened. For and I was before we started recording, I was saying this book does not have a lot of plot in it, other than this growing relationship between these two people. It talks about everything else in the world except what's going on in their world. Um, and I can't remember what I was going to say about that. Was something. It's like a workplace romance. Too. Ah, it is like a workplace romance. Yes. No wonder you like. So it like ticks all my boxes, kind of in a beautiful way. And wordplay, like so much, like poetic wordplay and right. jokes. And I'm sure that I got like maybe like ten percent of the jokes, maybe. <laughs> yes. Um, this was this was a thing for me because I listened to it on audio, and I said it was a good audio book, but I kept thinking, I'm not smart enough for this book. I'm missing stuff here. I need to, you know somehow rewind this or go back and look at this again and understand it. The, the number and breadth of allusions to other things right? in this book is astonishing. And at first I was like, I would buy the annotated edition. Yeah, that's but what I like, I feel like I should just take my paper copy and we can all pass it around and annotate it. That would be just as good. Because maybe you might understand some things that I'm totally and completely missing in this book that then you could enlighten me about well and because i think a lot of those references become relational at least for me so it's not like do amal and max think this is funny it's like <laughs> oh and this is a joke marion thought was funny because of her experience xyz yeah i mean it's, okay so here's an example and it's a yes. small spoiler so not a big spoiler um they're writing these letters back and forth and at one point one of them suggests to the other that they read this victorian guide to letter writing i assume that would be your favorite part of this book yeah so like how 
a letter should look or the parts a letter should be. And they find their letters to each other in weird places, like really weird places. So one of them has been at a place in time where she is being a seal hunter. I thought it was like an indigenous They live person. on the ice, yeah. Yeah, living on the ice. And they catch the seal and kill it and open it up and find the letter inside. And the letter says here, I thought you would, would like, I've been reading a book like you told me to, and it said you should always, you know, close your letter with a wax seal. And probably two minutes after they said that, I burst out laughing because I finally got it. Right. It's not a wax seal, it's a whacked seal. Um, and maybe, it's delightful. It is delightful. Maybe I would have gotten it faster on a page. I don't know, but I was like, that's a funny joke. Yeah. Um, horrible. And also funny. Horrible uh, and funny. Yeah. I actually, I told that whole part to my kids. I sort of retold it to my kids and they also thought it was hilarious. It and is hilarious. Like, Mom, what's happening in that book? And I was like, I mean, they're just writing letters. It's fine. It's right. And, and I thought it, it made it a better book to me in a way that you can have this extremely high level discussion of ideas and a wax seal joke. Right. In the same way that, you know, Shakespeare's awesome and also tells a lot of fart jokes. Yes. Um, right. It's like real literature. It is. Because it is doing both and not trying to only do one or only do the other. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. And it, I really wanted to sit next to somebody while reading it and like read it out loud with them the whole time and talk about the jokes, but I did not make that happen in my life. But I have convinced several friends to read it, which has been almost as good. Well, and, and I don't know that I had put a thought here in our outline that we used to discuss what we we're talking about that, that maybe I think even if we were sitting next to each other reading this book, we wouldn't get any further than that. I have been watching, um, I started watching Malcolm Gladwell's Masterclass, just watching the videos, I haven't done any of the work yet. And he's super interesting. But he's talking about in his, in his own writing, which is full of statistics and tables and facts and stuff like that, that there's multiple levels to it. And he says that people, when they talk about something they've consumed, whether it's a book or a movie, they don't talk about it in the same way that they think about it. That in conversation, he calls them snacks and meals, that... In conversation, you cling to the little snack moments that are easy for you to, to transmit to someone else, to talk to someone else about. But that's different than the bits that you're thinking about savoring, mulling, turning over in your head for a longer period of time so that as a writer, you need to include both snacks and meals so that consumers can use your product on multiple different levels. And I think this book is really doing that because it has wax seal jokes that you and I could talk about, or you can tell your kids. I think I told my kids too. Because it's funny. Because it's funny. And it's a little thing we can understand. And then there's that stuff that's causing you to have read this book, however many times you've read this book, Alyssa, uh, which is several. Several. And mull and think about the bigger ideas in it that are harder to explain to someone else, but that you are connecting with inside your head. And making appropriate to your own life or your own experience. Which is why I like this book so much. Yes. Clearly it's a book that speaks to you. I'm going to skip ahead on our outline for a second okay. and talk about this trip I took to Ohio for work. Okay. And um, it's a long story, but I'm doing these things at work <laughs> with the Kettering Foundation and deliberative conversations and um helping people talk through um, big societal issues based on the options we have that would value freedom or safety or fairness when solving them. And um, like NIFI.org has all the information about it. But in the trainings and in the learning meetings, um, the managing editor of all the issue guides, Brad Rourke, shared this article he had written about machine brain and garden brain and forest brain. No way. Right? And my brain was like, oh, it's red and blue. <laughs> Right. So I like repost his article and he wrote this like, he wrote his article in 2017. So like before this book was a thing. Um, And so I reposted his article on Twitter and tagged the authors of this is how you lose a time war. And I was like, you guys, you guys, you guys, you got to see this. Um, Because they were like, they both wrote back and was like, yes, this is amazing. Um, And the idea behind Brad's article is really that 
there are different ways, and he's summarizing like um, societal research, there are different ways of looking at how communities develop and machine brain says everything is a machine and it's there's cogs in the system and it's okay if some things fail, it's all part of the process. And garden brain says we have to we have to tend everything and we have to uh, plant it and sow it and you know all that. Um, and then he advanced this idea of forest brain, which was that the community has been there before us, the community will be there after us. What we can do is try to um, try to help be like a forest ranger and um, and tend the community in a way that helps it be more successful, but we ultimately don't control it. Um, it's bigger than us, right? And so the thing I was at was a training basically to be a community forest ranger, metaphorically. So the whole thing was beautiful and the whole thing was totally, this is how lose, to lose the time war in a beautiful way. Um, but it didn't have a picture of anything red or blue, but it did have machine brain and garden brain, which is basically the same thing. It's basically the same thing. And like this, this, I like the concept that the future is a dichotomy that you can either have a technological future or an organic future, I guess. And our problem was that they were not able, none of those people were able to find a future that incorporated both of those things. Right. I'm kind of terrified by that same dichotomy. <laughs> so really comfortable with the work I'm doing and with that metaphor that he was using where like, Everything is bigger than us, and we are part of it, and so we just do our best to make it work better. Well, yes, you're part of the big machine and tending your garden within it. Yes, but a forest metaphor. Exactly. Yes. Thank you for letting me jump ahead, because I realized it fit right there. No, that's perfect, and and like that. So, but in a way, if I'm understanding the book well, which is uh, sketchy, the main characters are looking for a way to find that forest, right? To be the forest. Yeah, ranger. to find that place like, where they find, can have tea and dogs. Yeah, to find and be neighbors. The, the way that there's a place for both of them to continue to exist, which is their problem all the way through this, is that they're saying, if, if you continue, then I cannot. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that is why I love this book. And also, like an entire, entire novella length, like Intense Flirting was also good. Mm-hmm. And jokes. The other thing I think we wanted to talk about with this book is the fact that currently, as we speak, um, the Goodreads Book Awards voting is ongoing. Yes. And this book has, I think, made it all the way to the final round. Yes. As it could, you know, win the win the whole shooting match. And I have been frankly surprised by it. Not because I don't think it's not a wonderful book, because it is a wonderful book, but because is such an unusual book. And uh, Goodreads bought God Bless It's Cotton Socks is, is grand and so forth. But because it is community driven over a wide variety of people, niche books, and I think this is really a literary fiction book. Definitely. Um, don't tend to fare as well in its voting as mass market high concept books do so that because more people read them and i know that like when i went on and i voted in categories that i had actually read but i hadn't read all the books we were voting on you know i'm the the academy award uh (laughs) voter who hasn't seen all the movies and so you you tend to vote for the book that you've actually read yes uh and this has been a very popular book and it's been on a lot of of lists, but it is not an, uh, a candy read. You know, it's not a short and easy read. It's a book you have to pay attention to, like a lot. Um, and more of a, of a message book and a philosophical book, and like I said, a literary fiction book. And I was surprised it has done so well in a voting system that favors popular big YA fantasies over little literary books. So maybe that says either something really good about we as a people. I don't know. Maybe we're smarter than we give ourselves credit for. Or people read short books. Right, because the other ones um, in that category are long books. They are. still on my shelf. <laughs> and it's part of me, it's like, I wonder if it's kind of like a bandwagon thing too. 
because it has been so lauded, maybe people, I mean, and I'm not dissing it in any way, but maybe some people are voting for it because they've heard it's so awesome. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think you could. Yeah. Um, and because it had it had its own great fandom around red and blue, around picking a side, around, right. uh, you know, where people, there were jokes people wanted to share from it. Like people would get on Twitter and like crow about like something they'd figured out or there you go. So some see, reference but, but that, that doesn't mean that, that all those, all the other people they're tweeting to have actually read it. Right. It reminds, I always think to about a Donald E. Westlake book, and I can't remember, it may be Dan- Dancing Aztecs, but it has these two guys on a plane, and they're in first class. And they're ordering uh, martinis, and one of them is complaining bitterly because the airplane does not have Tanqueray gin. And the other one is also complaining bitterly, but in his secret soul, yes. he can't tell the difference between Tanqueray and any other gin. But he would <laughs> never admit this in public because... It would be like social death. Oh, I want to riff off that and say this book was much easier to carry in public than Gideon the Ninth because I took Gideon the Ninth with me to Ohio on planes and I was very uncomfortable trying to read Gideon the Ninth in the airport and next to my bosses and on the plane next to people who didn't seem to appreciate my you know, book that on the front had scary face makeup and somebody with giant swords and skulls. And <laughs> That's true. It is a very pretty little blue book with birdies on it. Right. Like, in, you know, this is how you lose the time war. That sounds not so much versus like on the front of Gideon the Ninth, it says something about lesbian necromancers in space. <laughs> and like when I still read it on the plane, sure. but I was like, eh, how are we feeling about sitting real close together while I read this? Yeah. Um, so maybe it also was easier to read in public and easier to talk about reading. Could be, and and those short chapters might play into that too. Um, the the shortness of the chapters, if you'll pardon me, reminded me of what they used to in my childhood call a bathroom book, because oh. you can go in there and read it in five minute or ten minute blocks, yeah, uh, and then walk away. Whereas a book, I have not read Gideon tonight, but it sounds exciting. Uh, I'm like 60 pages in and it is delightful. Okay, but it probably has much longer chapters or longer scenes that are you can't walk away from and come back to and know where you are. The writing is so amazingly literary and intense that I have to whisper the whole book out loud to myself. Wow. Yeah, but it's great. Okay. Also, that part was weird on the plane. (laughs) (laughs) Liz is talking to herself again. My little voices. That's probably not so good. About necromancers. About necromancers. And lesbian vampires in mm-hmm. space no no just not vampires just necromancers oh yeah but ne- my sister saw the cover and she was like i didn't think we read scary books <laughs> i don't read scary books right well, i was like it's not so scary they're just you know doing their job well i have a 15 year old who reads stephen king all the time and i'm like don't tell me the story i don't want to know so let me know when everything is back to normal at the end that, maybe. that's right are you sure you're sleeping okay so maybe it'll win the Goodreads award, and uh, and if not, the fact that it was nominated and made it so far, so and far. the fact that it's on the NPR concierge. Yeah, I'm list. very, I'm very impressed. And thank you, by the way. I read that that list, and of the that huge list of NPR books they've recommended, of which I have read four, count them four, and three of them were books you recommended to me. So well, I have been reading a lot of really great sci-fi this year, and that's yeah. probably what I'd recommended. <laughs> So we'll, then we'll talk about that uh, in the next episode, probably. Probably. So do you want to talk about a happier book for you? Let's talk about a happier book for me. Tell me about it. Okay, our second book is The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. Also a book that you recommended. And here is the description. Follow a motley crew on an exciting journey through space and one adventurous young explorer who discovers the meaning of family in the far reaches of the universe in this lighthearted debut space opera from a rising sci-fi star. Rosemary Harper doesn't expect much when she joins the crew of the aging Wayfarer. While the patched-up ship has seen better days, it offers her a bed, a chance to explore the far-off corners of the galaxy, and most importantly, some distance from her past. An introspective young woman who learned early to keep to herself She's never met anyone remotely like the ship's diverse crew, including Sissix, the exotic reptilian pilot, chatty engineers Kizzy and Jenks, who keep the ship running, and Ashby, their noble captain. Life aboard the Wayfarer is chaotic and crazy, exactly what Rosemary wants. 
It's also about to get extremely dangerous when a crew is offered the job of a lifetime. Tunneling wormholes through space to a distant planet is definitely lucrative and will keep them comfortable for years, but risking her life wasn't part of the plan. In the far reaches of deep space, the tiny Wayfarer crew will confront a host of unexpected mishaps and thrilling adventures that force them to depend on each other. To survive, Rosemary's got to learn how to rely on this assortment of oddballs, an experience that teaches her about love and trust, and that having a family isn't necessarily the worst thing in the universe. That description is actually what this book is about. It is, and also it kind of isn't, because the book is not centered around Rosemary as heavily as I expected it to be based on that description. True. You know, there's big chunks of time where she does not appear on a page at all. Uh, it's more of a of an ensemble cast than main character driven, but it's probably harder to explain that on a book jacket. It's a very good description, however, for a change. Yay! I just go. wanted to call out that that was a good description. It is a good description. And it is better than a description that's on the book jacket itself, I think. Oh, um, I have that. Hold on, let me which look. Is yeah, blah, blah, blah. It's actually pretty similar. Yeah. But it's, <gasps> on the book jacket, after that last part, having a family isn't necessarily the worst thing in the universe. The back of the book jacket says dot, 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 as long as you actually like them. <laughs> yes. I find that an interesting edit. It is an interesting edit. Um, and it is one of the things I, I categorically really liked about this book, and I really liked this book, was that I like books the way you like office romance books sometimes yes. or or community building books i really like found family books oh yes um in my own writing it's a theme i tend to come back to a lot this kind of the family that you make as opposed to the family that you're born with and i have mom if you're listening i have no problems with you a uh, great family that i was born with but i also like the family that you make books maybe because i've moved so much in my life yeah many many times and i tend to I have to find a new family where I am and, and rebuild. Uh, so I really liked that aspect of it. And I liked, I thought all the characters are particularly dimensional and well-drawn. And it was easy to know who was talking, even without dialogue tags. Are there no dialogue tags? There I, are di- I mean, there are dialogue tags, but in those sections where people are talking, they're, they're, right. their voices are distinct enough that you know who it is without the dialogue tags. Yes. I did the audiobook over and over and over and yes. over. Yes. I had it on an audiobook too, and I also have uh, the paper copy here. Uh, so, how many times have you listened to this one? A bunch. Um, maybe four. Wow. And I re listened to a lot of it during Nano. Um, during Nano, whenever I needed to like do something that wasn't writing, I would listen to the beginning of an audiobook I'd heard before. And then when I went back to write, that would be what my characters did in book club. I love it. it. And I didn't just let myself do favorites. I did whatever was on my phone. So, so during Nano, I re-listened to um, the beginnings of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and Mark Twain's Roughing It and like whatever was on my phone. That's So did, did your characters discuss this book? Um, uh, they should have. Yes, it's hard to remember. To I mean, I'm asking you on December 4th yes. what happened on like November 15th. And I'm like, right. I don't know, man. I, I wrote like, a bunch of words. Days ago. <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah, they should have because I listened to it unless I just got distracted. No, I should have because and then and then it was great for character development within my weird book club book uh, because I got to see how the characters reacted to the book 15 years ago and now. Yeah. And it was lovely. It was a very specific kind of weird plot device. That's cool. And I got to re-listen to books while I cleaned my house. So since this is a book you've listened to four times, clearly you like the book. I do. Uh, a great deal. So what about it do you think is that thing that makes it a special book for you or a book you want to, that's beyond, oh, I enjoyed this and set it down and move along, but a book that you come back to? I... Um, I think it's about all the relationships, not just the found family, but there's a number of people who like partner in different ways. Um, and so when I try to think about how to explain why it was so great for me right now, like this, honestly, first year post-divorce, um, 
I thought about like romance romance novel beats and how like in a romance novel if you study the the mm-hmm. plot structure like always the goal is going to be like commitment coupling procreation right. marriage like the signs that you're bonding with somebody are going to be like we had sex without a condom and that was a big risk and so now we know we might have to get married and raise children together and like I mean yeah. those are mostly but right, but it's a, it but is about a regardless of how many characters in a book of romance is about two specific individuals making a specific kind of commitment. Right. And there are specific markers for that commitment. And if they hit them or don't, then you kind of know how it's going to go because that's what that genre looks like because that's what that relationship looks like in fiction in those kind of books. And like actual life is really broader than that, different and wider. And so I really liked that you were like at the, I mean, kind of a spoiler, but like at the end um, some of the characters who you would never expect to walk down a hallway together yeah. or be in the same room together without fighting are walking down a hallway together, and it's a big deal. Yeah, I, I would concur with that. And something that I particularly liked, and this book was very surprising to me because I thought it would be more space paddly because it's a space opera, and it, it right. isn't. It's a very gentle, soothing, cozy book. You're, you're right about that. And really... I don't want to say relaxing, but it's a book you can relax into. Yes. Um, Is that although Rosemary is listed as the main character in all these descriptions, like I said, really, it's it's an ensemble cast about all these people, and each of them has an arc, which I thought was lovely because I like minor characters in books a lot, you know? Um, Yeah. Those strange little quirky people who come in and, and... and do stuff and I always want to know I want them to grow as people too and have a life inside the book and each of these people which is a fairly large cast we were making a list before we started of like all the people in it I kept trying to add more to your list yeah you go ahead and you add those things they each have an arc and a change point almost as if this is really a collection of interrelated short stories yes and the different characters in the book tend to take the lead for a while during their turn to have story arc and change. Uh, And I really like that. And it also surprised me in some ways because like when Rosemary, when the book opens, she's arriving at the Wayfarer with a problem Uh, and it's a big problem. And I thought that I knew how that problem was going to play out because I've read books with similar problems before, but it didn't. Um, and I really loved that because, oh, I don't want to reveal what it all is, but when she finally comes clean to the other people on the Wayfarer and lets them into her life and explains her problems to that, she finds out that they are going to be supportive of her and understanding of her and not judge her based on her past or the actions of other people in her past, but judge her instead on who she's proving herself to be on board the Wayfarer and in their relationship with her. And I really liked that. To choose that human method of conflict resolution or problem resolution as opposed to the giant space battle format of resolving her problem. Because the thing, yes, all of that, yes, yes, yes. Um, The thing that could have been the giant space battle, they handle entirely differently. Uh Uh-huh. And it's so genius and lovely. Yes. So, who, speaking of lovely, who is your favorite character in this book? Ah. Ah. (laughs) Uh, I know how to hurt a girl. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe Kizzy. Okay. I don't know. Why, Kizzy? Kizzy has that line at the very end that I just really like, um, which I heard again this morning. I forgot how close to the end it was. Um, but hold on, I'll find the line. Somewhere... Well, anyway, the line is, um, we were never friends, or we're, you're not my friend, something like that. Because um, I thought she summed up, like, the whole book. Like, it's it's a found family book. Yeah. 
Um, these people aren't trying to be friends with each other. They rely on each other much too heavily for that. Um, just the basics of friendship aren't going to work where they're at, trapped in space for that long time. I don't know. She's adorable. She is adorable um, in lots of ways. And, and it's, it's kind of an unfair question to me to ask you because, like I said, I, I really like them all. Probably if I had to pick one, it's my yeah. favorite, I would pick Dr. Chef. Who's oh, yeah. the doctor and chef aboard this um, spacecraft? And he's a member of a of a dying species, I guess. And he is taking the place in this book of the 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 sage, I guess I'll say, the wise mentor. And he sees no stuff. But what I loved about him is is enthusiasm with trying things and his caringness toward other people. But that in putting him in that role, Becky Chambers did not gloss over his own problems, which are, are profound. You know, yeah. when you have a history where your own species has destroyed itself, there's a lot to, to think about there and to dwell on and to move past and how he's able to move past this life rooted in violence. Um, to a place where he is almost like, you know, higher level Buddhist <laughs> in a way. Before you filled in the word sage, I was going to supply the word matriarch. Yeah. Yeah. Because it just felt like that same. Yeah. But yeah, the Dr. Chef sage role. My favorite Dr. Chef moment was when he thought that you could serve ginger like potatoes. Yes. Like, that's wonderful. Like I think of it all the time now. <laughs> Just nice big slices of ginger. And yes. he's, you know, he's trying new things and, and checking it out. And he does make wonderful, weird things. I think this was one of those books that I was reading and thinking it needed a cookbook to go with it. Oh, yeah. Like, you know how they make like unofficial Harry Potter cookbook where you try to yeah. make something in reality that. Or like a cookbook craft book generally. Yeah. Because there are some projects in here. There are some projects in here. We're making the things. Oh, I'm just going to listen to it again. And, then... <laughs> and like make no notes about all the, the recipes. And then start some projects. Yeah. And maybe that could be a 2020. We can uh, try to figure out how to cook like those buns that he makes in this book. Which are, <gasps> yes. I can't remember like smoke buns or what they call Smoky it? buns. Smoky buns. Smoky yeah. buns. They sound so good. Mm -hmm. um, everything sounds really good in here. So if, you, if this, unlike... This is how you lose the time worth. This is a book I would take to the bathtub with me because yes. it is, or if I was in the depths of winter, because winter is descending all around us. If it's late January and it's cold, and it's dark and you're so over it. This is a book that I would turn to for comfort and pleasure, as well as big themes and thoughts. I mean, it's, it's got all that going on. It's not a fluff book. Um, like, I want to live on that ship with them. Yeah. But with Time War, I wish them the best from a real safe distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll sit over here in my bunker and observe you and, and love you and wish you... Yeah, but these guys are... They're honorable people at heart. Each of them is. Sometimes in a weird way. Um, but yes. So there's a second book in this series. Which was news to me. And also, I think, a third book. And here's what happened when I tried to start the second book. It's not about any of the people we put on our list. Who's it about? Do you want me to tell you? Yeah. It's about Lovelace. Really? From the very end. And the tech who... I'm looking up her name real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Lovelace and Pepper. Pepper. I would read that book. Yeah, you can. It's called A Closed and Common Orbit by Becky Chambers. Huh. And the audiobook is on the hoopla. You know, every year in our house, um, everyone gets for Christmas gifts, something you want, something you need, something to wear and something to read. And I have been wondering what book I should order up for myself. Maybe I'll pick that one. Maybe you should. Yes. I'm going to try to be brave and try the audiobook again, but I might just need to re-listen one more time. Maybe not. <laughs> and now I want to make that craft book. Yeah. I want to make the cooking yeah, craft you, well, book. Well, you're obliged to listen to this at least once more so you can take notes about all the foods they eat 
and yes. all the things they make so that we can make this book. Is a mm-hmm. salute to Becky Chambers and a thank you for this lovely, lovely book. Yes. It's a good plan. It's a good plan. Oh, and I'm going to start knitting my hat after this podcast is done recording. Because you, you sent me yarn. I did thank send you. you yarn. And, and uh, you know, I'm a knitting school dropout and uh, unable to knit. And I've wanted to knit my whole life. So I just like to lie back and watch you make the things because I'm so well, I will, um, admiring. I brought home some books and I'm going to choose a pattern and get started. Well, if you run out of yarn, let me know. I think I know where I can find some more. I mean, in my basement, technically, there's quite a bit. Well, I mean, matching yarn. Oh, yes. Um, I'm going to do a pattern where it starts at the top and goes down so that if my hat is not long enough, I can add a contrasting color. There you go. I have a plan. There you go. It's a good plan. I like it. Good plan. This is, I I know so little that I don't, didn't know, like, whether that's enough yarn to make something with or... It's enough yarn to make me real happy. Okay. And to get knitting needles in my hand. <laughs> and that is the right amount of yarn. The right amount of yarn. Maybe I'll knit in 2022. I don't know. Maybe I'll finally learn. I've only been trying to learn to knit since I was 15. So it's been a little while while I have been a total failure. But I own all the stuff. And in my head, I was like, okay, here's a care package I could send you. I can just cast on and knit a few rows on a bunch of knitting needles and mail them all to you. That's right. Well, technically, so you just keep practicing. Technically, I am able to cast on if if I refresh my memory how and knit and purl. But I'm really tense. So I make like armor instead of lovely soft knitted things. And if I make an error, which I do, I can't recover from mm, it. I'm really good at messing people up, so they have to learn how to recover. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we just need to run away together for like a week and a half, and then you could teach me to knit. Yes. Maybe. Somehow. Yes. You could mess we'll me up listen and to, to audiobooks. And we'll listen to audiobooks. And knit. And be warm, and it'll be good. So yeah. we have <laughs> described our ideal <laughs> reading in 2020 plans. Yes, yes, yes. And next podcast, we're going to describe our actual <laughs> reading in 2020 <laughs> Reality plans. crashes down around us. But maybe they'll have some similarities. Maybe. Maybe. I will give this some good thought. Yes. Um, what else did we have on our list? I think that's about it, Lissa, for now. Did we get it? And, uh, yeah. And then uh, I'll have to go away and figure out what I actually read in 2019 because I've been so bad with my Goodreads. Uh, me things. too. Yeah. Me too. We can look at what we podcasted about and then try to think of what else we read. There's that. There's that. I'll be like, and then I reread all those books. <laughs> I read it's only six books, but 4,000 times. Yes. Those are my stats. All right. Next time on the Book Evangelist podcast, we'll be discussing 2019 and reading and our plans, hopes, and dreams for 2020. Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Notes for this and previous episodes are available on the Book Evangelist website. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelist at gmail.com.